Good evening uh, to all of you. Welcome to this uh, Department of Geography and Environment uh, public lecture tonight. It is a, um, a great honor to have uh, Ian Golden um, here uh, speaking. Um, Ian is the director of the Oxford uh, Martin School. He's also an Oxford University professor of globalization and uh, development. He's been previously uh, a vice president of the uh, World Bank, and he's worked for so many international organizations that the list, if I read it out to you, we would still be here uh, by the end of this uh, talk. So I, I, I won't bore you, but EBRD, OECD, he was working uh, as a chief executive and managing director of the Development Bank of Southern Africa. He's worked with so many governments um, over time, uh, one of his many achievements. But the biggest achievement is, of course, that he uh, uh, was awarded an MSc in economics from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, I hear very well done. Uh, Ian, what's uh, the vice presidency of the World Bank compared to that? <laughs> Ian has also written uh, over 50 articles and um, 12 books. The topic of tonight is, of course, this book uh, here. You will be able to uh, buy it, uh, if you like, after uh, the talk outside. If you can leave to the left, I think, if you want to buy it and come back in through the right, and Ian will be happy to sign the copy for you. Um, the topic of the book and tonight's talk, Exceptional People, How Migration Shaped Our World and Will Define uh, Our Future, is of course uh, a really interesting topic, right? Migra there's few things just like migration and migrants that raise so many uh, political uh, controversies. Uh, this may be, uh, you might think, a very apt uh, institution opportunity to discuss this. I'm a migrant. Ian is a migrant. He's a South African national living in the UK. Most of you are at least temporary migrants. Some of you are uh, permanent migrants. But that's perhaps making it a little bit too easy for ourselves because the, the, the real controversy is, of course, not so much about the sort of highly educated migrants. And that's where your book, I think, is really interesting because it isn't uh, exclusively, or not even uh, to the main part, about only about skilled migrants, right? Your, your book really makes the argument that it's also the very low skilled migrants that uh, define our future and that make a real impact for the societies to which they go to. And that, of course, is where, where the really interesting uh, issues are. We all know that in times of economic crisis, it's usually the migrants, first of all, that sort of get get better. They take away our jobs and they create, they, you know, they take our welfare benefits and so on. So tonight is really Ian telling us more why, why this is sort of a myth and why migrants make a real contribution to the receiving societies. Now let me tell you just a little bit more. 40 minutes he will talk, roughly. We'll then have plenty of time for question and answer sessions. And as I said, at the end of the session he'll be... Uh, He'll be happy to sign, even happier to sell his book. <laughs> you can go ahead. Thanks very much, uh, Eric, and uh, 
Thanks to LSE for having me back. Uh, this is actually the second time I've come back to give a lecture since uh, I got my MSc here. So uh, the good news is uh, if you pass uh, and you do other things, you get invited back. Uh, how many of you are migrants? Okay. Um, that's, that's good. This is a, a very, very vibrant, innovative group of people. And um, the answer should be that you all put up your hands uh, because you're all migrants. Uh, everyone is a migrant, just depends how many generations back you look. And what I want to share with you is some thoughts about the role of migrants uh, in history uh, and why we need to think differently about this. Uh, and I suppose I think it's timely that I'm coming after the Prime Minister talked about this yesterday. Um, I wouldn't say my views are totally consistent with his. The the reason I wrote this book, uh, which is really a, one in a series of four books I'm writing on globalization, uh, is because of two, two real passions uh, that came to the fore. And it's a step to the side for me. I've never really worked on this topic. Uh, the one is that I think it is the most misunderstood of all the globalization flows. And I'll come back to some of the reasons for that. Uh, and it's vital that we get a better understanding of them. And if my book contributes in some small way to that understanding, uh, I would have succeeded. But the second reason is because I know that I wouldn't be alive uh, if it wasn't for migrants and for the ability of different countries in my parents, both on my father and my mother's side, uh, and my grandparents, both on my mother and father's side, to have accepted migrants. Uh, and I therefore feel that I have a sort of historical, ethical obligation to make the argument why we shouldn't pull up the bridge now to future generations who may also wish to survive, but are being perhaps prohibited from doing so uh, because our views on migration are becoming more and more uh, closed down. So the story I tell in the book is really in three parts. The first part is a historical analysis of migration. The second part is examining the implications in the current period, both for the migrants themselves and the sending countries and the receiving countries. And the third part is thinking about the future and where this is all heading and policies. The inside and back cover of the book uh, are my maternal and paternal genome. And for those of you that haven't done your genomes uh, and have the equivalent of about 50 pounds to spare, uh, I encourage you to do that. Uh, you just go onto the National Geographic website and they will send you a little pack and you send your saliva back to National Geographic and you will get your map going back 200,000 years. And uh, we'll all, of course, go back to the same spot in East Africa, which is our common ancestry. And the book starts there. If those people hadn't migrated, uh, the human race would have died out. And we know that there were these crunch points in history where migration was absolutely essential for the survival of our species. Uh, clearly, uh, there was no concept of borders then. One of the things about migration is that it's, it's our own mind that makes it. Before there were borders, there were no migrants of the type we think of today, no immigrants. And as the number of countries grow, uh, if we define migration as moving across borders, uh, it's obvious that the number of immigrants grow. 
So one of the things we need to understand as we think about migration is what do we mean uh, by people moving. But our ancestors didn't have this concept that we have, and they moved around the world uh, over a period of about 20,000 years. And as they did so, uh, they became smarter. And the reason why we're different to animals is because we migrated. Uh, the migration impulse in us and our ability to live in different geographical and ethical uh, environments uh, is what defines us as humans. So I consider this to be quite a fundamental part of who we are uh, and why we are. And I think that is true going forward. Our ability to migrate is going to shape our destiny in the same way it has our past. So people moved around the world and they dispersed. And then a most amazing thing began to happen uh, with increasing frequency from about the 1500s is people started connecting again. They started coming together. And when they came together and the technologies improved and things like steamships were invented to speed it up and cheapen it, uh, humanity leapfrogged. And all the great civilizations historically uh, are the result of people coming together. It's about people who spend thousands of years, or certainly generations, developing ideas in their own environment, moving to another environment and saying, aha, they do it differently. And if we share ideas, we can leapfrog. And so you have these periods in history, um, like about a thousand years ago, like about 500 years ago, uh, when great cities developed, when Islamic and Christian civilizations came together, when people learned things that had taken other people a very long time to develop. And what the Renaissance was, of course, about was an explosion in a very short period of time of collective genius because people came together, because they embraced the civilizations coming out of what is now Turkey and that area of the world because people came across and met the Chinese, what are now Chinese, etc. And there was this leapfrogging process going on. Now, when this stops, civilizations go backward. And one of the things you learn uh, from history and that I learned is that actually this is not a one-way process. It goes in fits and starts and can be reversed. And one of the reasons it's so important to think about globalization now is because this is not necessarily going to continue. We've seen uh, in this period of our lives, the lives that we've lived, uh, a most remarkable thing in the history of humanity, which has never, ever happened before. And that is the connectivity of people, the coming together of people at a rate uh, in a way, both physically and virtually, that has never happened. And so there are more people, more connected in the world than ever in history, and of course they're getting educated in the process. And this has led to an explosion of collective genius. Uh, and whether you're into hip-hop and you live in the slums of New York and teaching people in the slums of Shanghai how to hip-hop down YouTube, which is happening as we speak, or you're a scientist trying to find a new cure for cancer, this collective connectivity is what's going to drive us forward and lead to, I believe, a period of incredible opportunity. 
But whether we're able to seize this opportunity will depend on whether we are open to integrating with others and being able to understand that we alone, any one country alone, is not going to be able to solve its problems. So the first part of the book is looking at this and making the point not only that connectivity and movement was the cause of development, but also that it can be reversed. It also highlights another point, which is, I think, very important, which is one can't be Panglossian or believe that all migration is good. There were terrible things done, uh, which we call migration, like slavery, like forced movement of labor, uh, and many other dimensions of it. So it's not that this is somehow an innocent process. It was often done in the name of imperialism, of the destruction of one civilization by another, either intentionally or unintentionally, as was the case with diseases spreading uh, into large parts of the Americas. But the effect, in retrospect, is fundamentally to transform the geography of the world. Now, passports um, are a very recent invention. There was a lot of discussion about passports at various times in history, but all the same thinkers rejected it, rejected passports because they believed, uh, and not least the great philosophers that economists look to, like John Stuart Mill, that these were incompatible with not only development, economic development, but also the ethical basis of their philosophies. It's a great irony to me that the neoclassical economists now and the great upholders of Adam Smith, uh, who many regard as their forefather, uh, don't read what he says about migration. Because what he always said, uh, and I quote, the free circulation of labor from one employment to another and from one country to another is essential. This is true of all the great thinkers on economics, as I mentioned, John Stuart Mill and others, but also the legal experts at the time. So Bollas, for example, who was a leading Italian theorist, talked about, in, I quote, the surest thermometer of the freedom of people is to be found in the examination of its legislation concerning passports. And in the UK, the Secretary of State, 1872, said, by the existing law of Great Britain, all foreigners have the unrestricted right of entrance and residence in this country. So something happened about a hundred years ago, and it's a most shocking time for people, and there's a great novel by a guy called Traven who writes about this and talks about this experience. He's, uh, he's traveling around and he's leaving France in 1915, and he was surprised to be asked for his papers, and he responds, I have no passport, no have I any identification card, no immigration stamp, no customs house seal. I have no papers at all. Never in my life did I ever have any papers. Every age has its inquisition. Our age has the passport to make up for the tortures of medieval times. So this is people waking up in the 1918 period after the First World War to passports for the first time. We've gone through a period of the last hundred years of increasing building of barriers between countries, increasing restrictions to travel that were unknown in previous periods. As transport has got cheaper, um, as connectivity has got easier, the barriers have got higher. And of course, 
this doesn't stop people moving. Now, there was a period uh, in the period about 1850 to about 1900 where there was a mass migration of people, much greater than anything we are experiencing now. A third of Ireland, as you know, migrated. A third of Sweden, a third of parts of Italy migrated. People were leaving famine, they were leaving persecution, they were leaving poverty. And as Galbraith has says, migration has always been historically the way that people escape poverty and persecution. That is what people did. They got up and moved, and that's what my forefathers did, facing the pogroms, facing, facing the Nazis. And if they hadn't done it, I wouldn't be here. But this is what people have always done. And it's really only the creation of these border controls that stop them happening. Indeed, I would go so far as to argue that poverty levels would be much lower in the world uh, if people were able to migrate. Indeed, we might not have poverty. There's some thought experiments that can be done, uh, and the World Bank has done some of these, in which they examine the impact on, for example, poverty numbers of freer movement. And just a small a 3% increase in the movement of people uh, from the poorer countries would lead to improvements in the income of something like $350 billion. That's six times aid flows to those countries. So these are very big numbers and very important, understanding how this rise of nationalism, how this process of creating barriers has fundamentally changed the options for people, fundamentally changed the capacity of people to escape poverty, to escape conflict uh, and to settle elsewhere. But what it's also done is undermine the growth potential and the creative potential of the world, and I'll come back to that, because that is a dramatically important factor if we're thinking about the future of Britain or of any society. So let me turn now to the second part of the book, which is about the reasons why in this period, uh, basically since the Second World War, why people leave uh, and what happens to the sending countries and to the receiving countries in this process. Well, I've given some hints already of why people leave. They leave because of persecution, because of poverty, uh, and because of income gaps. People generally don't want to leave home. They don't want to leave their communities. It tends to be a last resort. And when you look at the data, around who leaves, it tends not to be a personal decision. It tends to be a decision made by a family, by a community. It's often the eldest, uh, eldest son, eldest daughter, depending on which communities they're coming from, uh, and often against their will. The family often decides that this is a way of risk insurance. When my uh, grandparents uh, left uh, Eastern Europe, they, they had 10 kids. They sent each kid to a different place. Uh, it's really unimaginable that I would do that, if, uh, even to my two children. But it's the nature of risk management and risk insurance that people did these things. They wanted to ensure that somehow they survived. And that decision was not taken by the people migrating. It was taken by the family, and that's how most migration decisions tend to be made still today. That is why you also get these network effects. They go to places where they know someone, and when we examine the data on why migrants go to different places, these network effects are extremely important. 
The poorest people don't tend to leave. They don't have the means to leave. Uh, and often it is people that are slightly above the poverty lines. So often the first migration people make is from rural to urban areas and then urban areas internationally. Uh, and they tend to go to neighboring countries. And we'll come back to that when we discuss climate change. People rarely uh, make an international trip as their first move. But that does happen, particularly if they're proximate and particularly uh, if they're able to have the means to do so. So the decision on why to leave is often a push decision around persecution, around uh, fears, and it's often a decision that's not made by the migrants themselves. It's made by the group. It's also the case that it's not the most uneducated that uh, migrate. It tends to be people with some education, with literacy, with some ability. And again, this is a decision which is one that takes extreme bravery. One of the reasons I've called this book Exceptional People is obviously because the people are seen as exceptions in the societies they go to, wrongly so, but also because the people that migrate themselves are exceptional. They are risk takers, they are brave people. They are taking decisions on behalf of others often. They send them back money and they do it in order that their families, their siblings and others will have a better life. What about the impact on the sending countries that they come from? The economic impact tends to mainly focus on the brain drain, the effect on these societies of large numbers of people leaving. And this is devastating for certain countries. It's sometimes the case that over half the professionals in a society leave. So over half the doctors, the nurses, and the professionals in Africa are outside Africa. Over half the professionals in the Caribbean have left the Caribbean. Our hospitals, our professional services are staffed with them. So this is a dramatically negative effect on those society. Because they also tend to be the political activists at a certain time, it can slow down political change. But as we've seen in South Africa, uh, but also in other societies, if the diaspora becomes active and engaged and connects to their country, they can support a process of change. And when the country transforms and they go back, they can greatly assist by transferring back skills and investment. To go to the extreme, one can think of countries like Taiwan and Israel, which are virtually dependent politically for their political halo effect and for finance uh, and for technical innovation on their diasporas. It's difficult to imagine these countries being what they are today without their diasporas. So it's not necessarily the case that people that are leaving undermine the potential uh, of their country's development or the country's future. It can be. It depends on what the diasporas do and how they integrate. It's also important to realize when we talk about migration that although we tend to think about this as a transfer of people from poor countries to rich countries, developing countries like African, Asian, Latin American countries, northern countries, actually most migration is between these groups of countries. So most migration is between the rich countries and between developing countries. Most migration in Africa is between the countries of Africa. Uh, something like 80% of the migration in Africa is between the countries of Africa, similarly in Latin America and similarly in Asia. So the people that migrate to the, the richer countries tend, again, to be at the higher end uh, of this. 
The migration between the rich countries currently is about 53 million people, about 61 million people between developing countries and from developing countries to developed countries, about 50 million people, and from rich countries to developing countries, about 14 million people. So it's the circular movement of different people. The, the migrants that go to other countries send back to developing countries about $350 billion a year uh, in remittances. And these are most probably underestimates because people often send back informally. These are the officially recorded remittances, growing very rapidly. These are very significant transfers. For many countries, this can be half of the income of the country. And for poor people in poor communities, it's extremely important. So many communities survive on the flows of money that come back to them, uh, and often the poorest. The good thing about remittances as well is that they're counter-cyclical. In other words, when, it, when people are worse off, they tend to receive more money. This is very unlike aid flows, which are pro-cyclical. They tend to go with the economic cycle. Uh, whereas migration flows of remittances tend to go to, in compensating for the economic uh, cycle. So this is extremely important. So the, the story around sending countries is a mixed one. It's a, it's a story about what they do, and it's also about how they respond. You'll be aware that the Philippines is a major exporter of teachers and nurses. But the Philippines is not short of teachers and nurses because it's become a, the biggest export business for the Philippines, and people often borrow the money through a loan system, a private system, in order to uh, get this education. They then, part of, a member of the family goes abroad, uh, and the loan is repaid. So the Philippines is no worse off. Indeed, it's much better off. And if you look at the per capita incidence, or per capita numbers, on, for example, nursing uh, and teaching, in the Philippines. They're higher than their comparators because it's got this overinvestment in these areas due to the migration potential that these areas bring. So it's not necessarily the case that it needs to lead to a drain on professionals either, although it is often the case. What about the impact on the countries that the migrants go to? This is the most contested uh, area, not least in the UK now. And let me just go through a couple of dimensions um, of this because people worry a lot about this. And I'll focus, because I'm an economist, um, on the economic impacts. The impacts on growth statically are positive, uh, and the impact on every dimension is positive. But there's extreme weakness in the economics around these numbers. And that's mainly because they only take account of static comparative analysis. And I'll come back to what that means. But essentially what it means is that we don't think about the long-term gains to societies or the diverse gains that come from uh, migration. So the, the, the studies that there are tend to suggest that in the US, for example, about $10 billion plus a year from uh, migration and the creation of something like 20 million new jobs created by migrants. This is on a static basis. Uh, the similar sorts of numbers apply for Western Europe uh, and Southern European countries. In the UK, for example, foreigners make up about 10% uh, of the workforce, but about half of all new jobs uh, are filled by foreigners. And it's not because somehow they're stealing locals' jobs. It's because they're doing things that locals will not do. On wages, 
There's a lot of analysis now about whether they reduce wages uh, and what the impact is. And the studies generally point to the fact that what happens is that wages are better. And even if wages in some areas where there's very high numbers uh, of migrants are lower for a small share of the population, what is not accounted for is that there's a lower price for all other goods and services. So, for example, you might, get, you might be paid slightly less if you work in a car factory, but everything that you pay for outside that will be cheaper, particularly as you pay for your childcare, your dry cleaning, your other costs, your services, your shopping services, your food, and everything else. And these lower prices in society benefit the society as a whole. What is also needs to be recognized is that, of course, what migration does is it releases women often from the household. So migrants who do childcare, migrants that do cleaning and whatever, other t home tasks women used to do, release women often, because it is, does tend to be women that were confined to that into the labor market. And there would be much lower levels of female participation in the labor force if there was not migration. So the overall study by a guy called Borjas, who's the leading economist in the U.S. working on this, found that migration produced no negative effect on U.S. workers and may well be producing a positive effect even when looking in a static environment. But what this doesn't take into account is the innovation effect of migrants. And this, to me, is the most powerful story. What, what I take away from the new growth theory and from the analysis of migrants in innovation is that these are the source of dynamism in society as they always were. I've told the story in the first part of the book about the role of migrants in leaps in civilization. And that remains the case uh, in our time. Why is it that migrants make up such a high share, for example, of Nobel laureates, Academy Award winners, uh, film directors, musicians, and other people, inventors on the frontier of society. It's because these people are able to bring diverse perspectives into their environment and create in a way that people that have been in it have not seen. It's no accident that more than half of the patents taken out in the U.S. now are by migrants, even though they only constitute about 10% of the population. And when you look at the startups in Silicon Valley, and one has to think first, following the tragic death of Steve Jobs, of him, Steve would not be allowed in to the UK now. Father Syrian, mother German-Swiss. And similarly, the other big firms, Yahoo, Google, PayPal, eBay, Intel, all of these firms, migrant startups, Half the Silicon Valley startups are by migrants. Half the investment in Silicon Valley by migrants. And when you look at the high-tech end of the patent spectrum, I gave you the aggregate number, it's three-quarters of the high-end uh, side is, is migrant. So a very dramatic effect. Migrants account for 40% of the science and engineering doctorates. Uh, and 67% of the engineering and science workforce in the U.S. It's impossible to imagine the dynamism of that society without migration. And it's not just that these are creative people, but it's that their being in an environment creates 
a more diverse and exciting environment. And there's a great analysis by a guy called Scott Page, which shows that diversity brings a higher rate of invention and innovation. Diversity crowds in, not crowds out, invention. He looks at the analysis of the number of H-1B visas in different industries in the U.S. and in different localities. And then he looks at patent filings, and he finds a direct correlation between a one percentage point increase in migrant and 15% increase in patents. So it's not just that the migrants themselves are filing the patents. They are providing around them an environment which increases uh, everyone else's filings around them as well. What about the fiscal impact, which has been much talked about? Are these people a burden on the taxpayer? Again, I refer mainly to the data in the U.S. because it's so much better uh, than in Europe. What this shows is that in all environments, migrants put in much more than they take out to the taxman. And that tends to be because migrants, for the most part, uh, are less, are healthier, are income, higher levels of income participation, in other words, they lower levels of unemployment around migrants. And, and this is a very important point, where they are documented and part of the system, they're extremely law-abiding. Now, one can talk at length about undocumented and what are called illegal migrants. What's very important for societies is to ensure that people are part of the system and including it. The studies in the U.S. show for the U.K. that foreign-born population contribute 10% more to the U.K. government revenue than they receive through benefits. Were it not for the, this is a quote from the study. Were it not for the immigrant population, either public services in the U.K. would have to be cut or the government would need to increase the basic rate of income tax by one penny in every pound. This is true in most countries where the studies have been done. Either this impact is neutral or it is positive. Research looking at the impact of Polish, Czech and other migrants to the UK from the 10 countries that joined the European Union in 2004 showed the migrants contributed, and I quote, significantly more in taxes than they received in benefits and services. Um, Migrants from the accession countries paid 37% more in direct and indirect taxes than they received in benefits and through all the different types of benefits. So all the data that there is points to, paradoxically, that we should be concerned about too few migrants, especially if we want to reduce our taxes. So the burdens tend to be economically uh, very positive in terms of more migration. It's the social impact that people worry about, and that, I think, drives a lot of the politics. When you look at this, you try and understand why is it that we're so concerned about migrants. And you look at different cities around the world, as I do, there's some cities like Toronto, where half of the population are foreign-born. Toronto has just been voted in a poll I saw as the third best city in the world to live in. I imagine that's because there's the best range of food, of music, and of other things. It's the most vibrant city. It's a growing city. It's a city of innovation and change. And that's true of much of California. Not surprisingly, California, like in many other respects, 
is trying to separate itself from U.S. policy and be much more inviting of migrants. Because these places which understand this are going to be the places of the future. That's not only true of societies like Toronto or California, but also of places like Shanghai, which are embracing the immigration of people. Over 100,000 foreigners uh, growing by 20% a year in Shanghai. So why is it that we worry so much? It's partly that we're very bad at embracing migrants, absorbing them, ensuring their social mobility and inclusion in societies. It's also that we're not very good at distributing migrants. So you can understand the pressures on a place like Lampedusa in the south of Italy, or Malta, or Greece. If by an accident of geography you happen to be the entry point for migrants, as Slough is in the UK, 24% of the population of Slough up the road, migrant. I can understand uh, why the people of Slough are worried about that. I can understand parents who send their kids to school and find their kids are speaking a minority language if it's English. That is a real concern. And you can understand where the politics of this comes from, especially when unemployment is approaching 10%, as it is in the UK. So you can understand the concerns. But these concerns are about the failure of our politics to, A, be able to distribute migrants. So it's wrong that the refugees from North Africa get stuck in Lampedusa or Malta or Greece. This is a collective burden for the whole of the European <laughs> Union, and these people should be accepted by the whole of the European Union, not sent back to Greece. That's actually the legal position as well. The common movement of people in the European Union has been one of the great success stories of our time. This is the only experiment, as far as I'm aware, since passports were invented, of abolishing them. And it's absolutely extraordinary that in 23 countries you can move around without a passport in Europe. It's been a source of enormous benefit for Europe, not only in terms of its economy, creating one space, but also it's most importantly, I think, ended the prospect of war in Europe. So this is the most amazing thing. But to say that actually if you're from North Africa you can only go to Greece or Malta uh, is not part of that spirit. So one question is our ability to absorb people, our ability to direct resources to help integrate people. And I must say, I find in this concept the idea that we should shop people, that we should become suspicious of them and wonder if they're foreign, check the identity of our neighbors uh, to be contrary to a spirit of inclusion. Successful policies around migration are about ensuring that migrants identify with the society they're in, feel part of it, and feel like they're wanted and needed by that society, have a place in its future, and therefore can be part of it. Where you find marginalization is where people feel disaffected, where they feel that they are the other, that they are not respected for who they are and what they are bringing. So this question of policy, social policy, becomes extremely important. And wherever it is, it needs to be dealt with very firmly. It requires policy. It requires governments to say, migrants are good for our society. Our future depends on them. Your jobs depend on them. And we embrace them. And by the way, we are all migrants. For anyone that doesn't believe that they're a migrant living in England, I encourage them to read a great book called Bloody Foreigners uh, by a guy called Winder. 
he's a journalist, so it's an easy read. It's not like my academic book. And uh, what he shows is the absurdity of this myth of Englishness. Uh, of course, Queen Victoria uh, couldn't speak English uh, when she was a young kid. Uh, the idea that we've invented so recently about what it is and how we define ourselves uh, needs to be re-examined. We are a great society, a society that comes together because we believe in the virtues of democracy, uh, of freedom, and of the space that the society has created. Let me briefly turn to the future. The future, I believe, will drive this debate. It will drive it in a number of respects. Firstly, the economics and demographics are compelling. It's very difficult at this time to imagine it because we're living in a very difficult and dark time of high unemployment and economic crisis. But I believe that once this is overcome, uh, there will be continued growth. And in this period of growth, although the future is always very dangerous to predict, I imagine uh, that if you come back here and give a lecture as long as uh, ago, time after I left LSE and you come back, so about 30 years, um, you will be seeing a shortage of labor. And the UK's policy on migration will be to have headhunters around the world looking for people to come here. Uh, and not only the skilled, but also the unskilled. And that's because if you look at the growth rates and if you look at the demographics, it's pretty straight process of trends. Fertility is collapsing around the world. It's collapsing much more rapidly than life expectancy is increasing. The whole world, except Africa, will be well below replacement level uh, in 20 years' time. Uh, already the 10 lowest growth rates in the world in terms of fertility are developing countries. The rich country labor force, because of these demographic trends, will decline from about 800 million to about 600 million over the next 40 years. This is a dramatic change in the number of workers available, just the number of people coming into the labor market. There will be changes. There will be changes in the nature of work. There will be changes in age of entry and exit. We'll abolish ideas of pensions and retirement. All of that will be history. But in the process, we will have grave labor shortages, particularly for those of us that are going to be elderly. Life expectancy increasing dramatically. While we share this 90 minutes together, your life expectancy will increase by about 20 minutes. So all, all lectures of the LSE are good. When this plays through, you should live to close to 100. But who's going to be looking after you in your old age? Who's going to be paying for your pensions, for your retirement? Who's going to be in the society uh, to service you, to work in the restaurants, to help you? Our story that we know now about migration is going to turn itself on its head, just through the demographics. And when you put this together with the economics, you'll get a very different picture. Because actually the societies the migrants are coming from are going through an even more dramatic transformation than the societies they're going through. So they won't want to come. Also what we know is that as people get educated, they don't like doing certain things. When I came to LSE, I think about 5% of the UK population went to university. Now it's over 40%. It's a dramatic. People with education, university degrees don't really want to clean the streets. They don't really want to wash salad in a restaurant or clean an old lady uh, in her bathroom. 
So as our aspirations change, we want to do different things. We're going to need other people to do these things. And we will embrace them because we'll want them and we want them to pay our taxes. We want them to be legal. We want to know who they are. And so we want them to be documented. So this will change. It's just a question of time. The other big driving force, of course, is going to be climate change and the environment. This is dramatic. And depending on where you look to on your time horizon, will fundamentally change the nature of people movement. In the short term, it will mainly lead to movement within regions and already is, like within the Sahel of Africa. But in the longer term, where will the 50 million people in Bangladesh go uh, who are only a meter above sea level when that becomes inundated? They actually won't come here. They'll go to their neighboring countries. That's what migrants do, most of them. But there will be spillover effects. And we'll have to ask ourselves very difficult ethical questions like, do we have a responsibility for this in any way? If we have put the carbon into the atmosphere, which is lifting the level of the seas, do we have a responsibility for the lives of the people so affected? And what's our response? In the end, I think we will find that the ethics and the economics come together. That we embrace migration not only because we believe and know it is our future in terms of our economic livelihoods, but also because we know ethically and morally it's the right thing to do. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Ian. I think that was an exceptional lecture on exceptional people, migrants, the unsung, unsung heroes of uh, our age, of all ages, um, actually. Uh, it's going to be interesting now to see uh, what uh, our audience thinks. We'll start with the QAA session. If you could uh, please not follow my uh, bad example, not stating your name. Uh, which I forgot to, to say. Uh, please state your name because the, um, it's recorded, the event, and uh, please state your name and shortly where you're from, and then uh, ask your question. I said question, right? A question is something that has a question mark in the end. It could, in principle, be answered in principle by yes and no. So we're not, you know, we're looking for questions rather than statements. That's what I'm uh, trying to say. We will take them in groups of um, uh, three, perhaps four, uh, Four, I'll try and sort of be uh, uh, even it out uh, across uh, the audience. So uh, uh, raise your hands, please, if you would like to ask questions. And then when I, if, you know, if I uh, pick you to ask questions, if you could please wait for the uh, microphone to come to you. So let me know, please, if you want to. Yes, we'll have one, two, three, the first three. Liliana Harding from the University of East Anglia and alumna of the LSE. My question relates to your point about uh, the dynamic effects of having migrants from around the world. And one thing that Borjas has shown by looking at mathematicians in the United States is the fact that if you are competing in the same areas as the migrants, you actually might become less productive. Related to that as well, and something related to, to the dynamism of uh, having people moving between different countries, is the fact that, well, by, 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 by having people in a given destination, you obviously do shake hands and, and know them directly. However, communication networks nowadays are allowing us 
to exchange ideas across the world without having physically to be there. Doesn't that undermine the essential role of migration today? Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Gentleman here. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Um, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm a former intelligence analyst with Customs and Excise covering the ex-Soviet states. Um, my question, which admittedly the two examples I'm going to give is based on long-term forced migration, um, is how are the societies going to socially interact um, as, as opposed to the economic points, which I think you very well covered. The two examples I was giving, in 1983, bear in mind that's 1983, not many years before 1991, I was on board a Soviet warship in Greece, and it was very, very noticeable that this was one almightily fractured society. Every single officer and petty officer was European, and every rating, and there were an awful lot of them, was from Central Asia. And I've seen, since working in Central Asia, I've seen still some of that attitude continue. The other is from a democratic society, almost exactly a year later. When I was at the Alamo, I noticed that um, this was a, a city of two separate societies. Everybody there, everybody walking around the, what's left of it, was very much a wasp and everybody else going nowhere near the place was um, Hispanic, black, and indeed Native American. So um, clearly, seems to be work that example seems to be working economically, but I would have my doubts socially, and of course we saw what happened to the Soviet Union. Okay, thank you. If you don't know what WASP is, it's white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Yes. Someone, someone, someone there, yeah. Uh, hi there, uh, my name's Simon Pope. Um, I'm a New Zealand-born, um, but uh, to an English father, so I've come back. Uh, my question is basically, if you were to imagine the ideal policy shift from what we have currently in sort of migration rules around the world, how would that happen? Would it be an instant lifting of national borders, or would it need to be more progressive? Thank you. Interesting set of questions. Yeah, thank you very much for those uh, questions, which also allow me to cover some things which uh, I omitted to do. Um, I think the, and they, they're fascinating questions, and I, I, you know, I don't have the answers, and I hope you do, because I'd love to know them. Um, but this question about whether virtual connectivity is a substitute for physical connectivity is one that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, and I don't think it is. I think it makes one more selective uh, in your physical connectivity. Uh, I think it enables all sorts of things which are unimaginable because of the breadth and reach. So people learning to do things around the world, like my hip-hop uh, dance examples between Harlem and Shanghai. Um, and that will lead to a, a very rapid release of energy. But when you speak to people in any profession, uh, there's still no substitute for the real physical connection uh, and collaboration. Uh, both in the sustained sense, like people working together in a lab or uh, in, in, in a band or anything like that uh, from different environments, uh, and uh, in the one-off sense of going to a conference or going to a meeting. I think being more selective allows you to do it. And one of the interesting 
areas is the crossover between these things. So how do you make the virtual experience feel more real? How do you make the real bring in some of the virtual uh, to it? Um, but I, I don't think that is um, going to reduce it. The, the other thing that, that I think is important that we realize is that you only, because income growth is so rapid in the world, uh, especially in the developing world, uh, places like China, 10% compounded growth, people doubling their incomes every 10 years, less, far less than 1% of people ever traveled. When you get small movements on very big volumes, you get massive shifts. So even if you have a smaller number of people needing to travel, because we're moving into this era of super connectivity, uh, a billion new middle class people coming in, hundreds of million newly educated people, uh, they all want to go somewhere. Everyone wants to come to Oxford and look at it, or come to the LSE and look at it. Um, there's no f virtual substitute for that. Uh, the, the point about Borges and competition, um, the declining return on, uh, on this is, I think, an, an interesting one. There, when, when innovators come together, there's lots of externalities, as we've seen in Silicon Valley, as we see in many environments, as we've seen in universities. Um, and there's no evidence uh, that I've seen uh, that it, it does increase competition, and therefore, at the margin, not everyone can be better off. But the whole ecosystem benefits as a result of that. And I think one needs to think about these environments uh, of creativity uh, as ecosystems. And it's the churn. You know, I'm a strong believer in the notion of creative destruction. It's the churn. It's the more rapid evolution. A lot of people with new ideas pushing out people with ideas that aren't just quite as good. Uh, and that's what's healthy. And that's why we see it. And of course, you know, I think it was in the media yesterday, we wouldn't have our graphene uh, Nobel Prize winners in Manchester or others if they weren't allowed here. The, 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 the question um, about stratification of societies and, and, and what, how migration plays into that is a very difficult one. And, and I must say, this was obviously clear from my lecture, I'm an economist and so I tend to see the world in rather economistic terms. When you start looking into the sociology and anthropology, it gets a lot more complicated um, and, 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 and outside my comfort area. I, a number of observations around this, though. The one is I haven't seen any evidence that migration leads to homogenization of cultures, uh, or indeed globalization leads to homogenization of cultures. You know, the French had a great worry, and I see it resurfacing now in the French presidential primaries, um, that somehow globalization will lead to the abolition of French restaurants and everyone will eat McDonald's in, uh, and listen to hip-hop in France. There's no evidence that this is the case. On the contrary, it's attracted more people to French restaurants and they're doing better than ever. Um, and that's true across cultures and across societies and actually has also led to the recreation of them. So, for example, a culture like the Armenian culture, which was virtually uh, dying out, has been recreated by the number of migrants that have moved, but the reinforcing of that with the virtual collectivity, so Facebook communities around it and other things which allow it to happen. Does migration lead to increasing stratification or decreasing? I think it's a partly a generational issue. It happens over time. The evidence, again, that I've seen most of is from the US. You look at the absorption of communities over the last 100 years into the US, the different waves of migrants that have come in, 
uh, and the, the, the first generation, still people can't speak the home language. Second generation, a little bit more integrated. Third, uh, third uh, more so. And incidentally, this isn't always a good thing. If you look at the health indicators, for example, on migrants, they tend to be best first generation and revert to the mean. In the case of the US, that tends to be a bad mean. Uh, they get more and more obese. They take up more and more bad habits uh, over time. So it's not necessarily the case. Uh, when you look at, for example, the health indicators on Mexicans going into the US, they're getting worse as the, uh, with each generation uh, of, of staying. So I, I think it's, it's partly a generational question. It's partly a social question. But I think that it's largely um, neutral. In other words, has the English class system, you know, and you'd be a great expert on this, has the English class system, the way that the, you know, the upper class in the UK think about the working class changed as a, fundamentally as a result of migration over time? Um, and I'm not sure what the answer to that would be. Um, and so despite the waves of new people coming in, they just recreate uh, their myths and, and other things over time. So I, I, I'm not sure about that, but it's, it, it's a really important and, and interesting question. I don't think it's necessarily different between dictatorships or democracies. In South Africa, I've seen the most horrific things done. Uh, in, in terms of uh, ethnic stratification and the identification of certain groups of people as migrants uh, with very severe consequences to them, uh, and that, that needs to be stopped. The, the question on the policy, um, the policy implications of all of this. In the book, I look at two thought experiments. The one is no migration, and the best thought experiment for that is probably North Korea or Eastern Europe when the wall was up. And you see what it does to those societies. It totally ossifies them. It stops their intellectual development, their political development, and it condemns their people to basically living in a society which the world has long since passed. That's the one corner solution, no migration. Um, the other corner solution is free migration. And the best example we have of that is the European Union, uh, which seems to have been, <laughs> despite all the the rhetoric around this a resounding success on this dimension. It's also incidentally not led to the mass movement of people. Look at the number of southern Europeans who have not migrated to Germany or to England or anywhere even though our average income levels are double or three times or were when the borders opened their levels. Some people move but actually the net movement now to Poland is back. Uh, so it, it's also a thought experiment about how many people would move if they had free movement. And it shows much lower levels of numbers than we imagined. Now, I don't believe that we should go for the straight opening of borders. I think that would be politically naive. I think about migration as I think about trade. And what's happened in trade is there's been a 50-year period of progressive realization of an ideal which is more open trade, more trade in services and goods between countries. But a succession of organizations, a succession of rounds, and we're now stuck in one, the Doha round. And we've, in this period, reduced the barriers to trade by about 80% over a 50-year period. But still, we haven't reached uh, the end goal over a 50-year period. Maybe we'll reach it over a 70-year period or a 100-year period. But it's knowing where you want to go, setting goals, and, achieve, and a progressive realization with all the things that go with it. We've also, in this time, understood trade. 
Hundreds of books have been written about the impacts on different countries, on different people in different countries. We have a data set on trade. We know what's traded. We never knew what was traded in the 50s. There was no global compatible data set. There's no data on migration. One of the big challenges in writing this book, and there's been some progress in the last year at Sussex University and at UNDP, is actually the data set on global migration, as you'll know from your time, is just abysmal. And everyone has their own definition. Some places define students as migrants, others don't. Sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's two years. Some visitors are, some aren't. And, the, and if you try and create a global data set, you end up with a complete dog's breakfast. So when you have a, 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 a set of goals, you need the data, you need a realization progressively, and you need an international organization. And one of the problems of migration is that it's the orphan of the international system. There's no UN agency for migration, uh, bizarrely. Uh, there is the International Migration Organization, IMO. It's a, it's a self-created organization. It does not include all the countries. It has no UN status, has no binding status on countries. And so my, my vision is that we should accept the end point as being free of migration. We should have ambitious targets to rapid realization of that. We should absolutely cast in stone certain rights of migrants, including the right uh, to, for example, the, or the demand for minimum wages, health and safety, and other terms conditions, the abolition of child labor, and all of these things, and uh, forced labor, all these other things which are vital. We should also immediately implement things like pension portability, which are a major region a lot of people don't go home because they can't take their pensions with them, and various other things that can be done immediately. But the idea of opening borders, um, as much as I do see it as my desired end goal, I believe is something that has to be progressively realized. Okay, thank you very much. You can stay there if you yeah. want. We'll take uh, two or three more questions down here, and then we move up. So first here, and then we move up. Yes, one first here, second here. Can people upstairs ask questions? Or yes, after this round, okay. because they, they might, might oh, have okay. to move upwards. Yes, one, two, three. Okay, go ahead, please. If, as you say, the very poorest people in the world can't migrate, you need a little bit of something, what happens uh, with possible natural disasters with climate change, or if a really bad wolf turned on some people? What happens to the poorest people? Does there have to be some other way of doing asylum than just whoever manages to make it here? And I would like to ask a second question. Does, is the idea that migrants do jobs that locals don't want to do a mutation of the old colonial idea of the lazy native, considering that unemployed people are not allowed to turn down jobs? but only 30% of jobs turn up at job centres. The rest are networked. You did mention, I'm asking about this connection between networking and migration and, uh, excuse me, feeling a slight ethical responsibility to stand up for some of the people at the bottom of society, which does include a lot of the children of the last lot of migrants who used to be called immigrants. I'm not sure what this change of name is, is all about. Okay, thank you. Oh, I wanted to ask about gentrification oh, no, too. Sorry, two yeah. questions. Okay. <laughs> Hi, my name is Maria Carvalho and I'm actually an Indian Canadian who grew up in Saudi Arabia. My question actually is to regards with something you touched on in the end of the lecture about uh, people from emerging markets or very dynamic economies 
starting to stay. And I actually have a lot of friends who, are, who have ancestry, who, which are Chinese, Indian, Ghanaian, or even European, and they've actually decided to go back to their ancestral countries where their parents came from uh, to capitalize on those opportunities. So I was wondering, one, do you see this as a significant trend, and two, what are the implications Yeah, hi. Uh, my name's Julian. I'm a master's student here. Uh, I'd just like to understand, or I'd just like to hear if you have any solu or any proposed solutions to the legal, legal constraints um, that the European Union imposes on migrants to stay in their country when they come in the EU, um, balanced against maybe uh, the negatives of shopping around. Shopping around uh, in terms of choosing a European Union a state that they like to go into. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, what will happen to the poorest people? I'm afraid is um, what's always happened to the poorest people is they get the very short end of the stick. Um, the poor, are, the poorest people are always the most vulnerable to all shocks economic shocks, climate shocks, war shocks, any shocks. Um, and uh, I'm afraid that will remain the case, particularly those that are least able uh, to move. And you see this in the famines in, in um, East Africa now, uh, and you see it always. Uh, what, when you look at the evidence around, um, for example, the Sahel uh, and climate shocks over time, what you see often is the poorest, well, people die. The poorest people move a little bit, like to the local village, and then when they have enough resources, they move back onto their land. There's a lot of uh, resilience in these societies, um, but there's also uh, going to be, when you get structural change, like you'll get through climate change, through uh, changes that they will not be able to be resilient to, I think there's going to be um, a lot of uh, death, basically, and starvation. Uh, coming out of these environments. The, I think it's up to people around the world to decide what their ethical responsibilities are. I don't see migration as solving that particular problem in general uh, because these are not people who I believe uh, have the resources or necessarily want to migrate. Uh, they want to basically be uh, as close as they can to their home and their people but need the resources. And I think that's where humanitarian relief uh, has a massive role to play. And one of the tragedies of the world, um, which I was personally involved in, is that for some bizarre reason, the global humanitarian system uh, is reactive, not proactive. So every time there's a, a crisis, uh, the first thing that has to happen is that a whole lot of people have to run around with their begging rolls to the international agencies and governments and ask for money, uh, and then they can go and buy the food and the tents and everything else they need to buy. Precious time is wasted uh, in this, and one of the things that we're trying to do in the international humanitarian space is create a pot of money which would be ready for the next crisis. So that's very important. But I think that in the end it's going to be um, humanitarian relief, as well as, of course, addressing the root causes of the problem. Um, the, the question of um, networks and uh, what, how, how we perceive people, I think that's right. There's, there's always been this, this and, and again, part of the reason for the title of the book, that, that, and, and this book by Winder on, on bloody foreigners illustrates this very well. There's always been the, 
the regarding of the latest wave of migrants with disdain. Uh, Oh, the lazy people that are there in the first place? Um, well, I, I think that um, the, there's a whole debate about why don't people who are unemployed work. Okay. No, I, I get I get your point now. Um, yeah. Um, the I, th I think that's a very big issue, um, and the, part of the issue that, I, as I understand it, is are migrants really part of the system? And one of the things I advocate, uh, which is not um, necessarily popular, is the doc full documentation of all migrants. So I believe that migrants should be part of the system, should be subject to minimum wage legislation, health and safety legislation, tax, criminal records, and everything else. Uh, because I believe in that way, uh, they are unlikely to undermine locals uh, in part. There's lots of other good reasons for it, like they will pay tax, like we'll know who they are, like we'll be able to help them and their children, uh, etc. Um, but uh, part of that is that what you don't want in society is two tiers of people those that abide by the law, uh, whatever law, uh, and those that don't because we don't know who they are and because they're somehow under the radar. And um, I, one of the, the ways of dealing with that, and it's, it's very true in the US as it is in the UK, is by bringing people into documentation uh, structure. Now, uh, does that lead to a moral hazard where people who suddenly find that they've come illegally into the country suddenly become documented? That is a very big issue to deal with, uh, but I believe it's about the stock of people you have and then having a more humane system uh, of entry control. The question on um, are people going home uh, and innovating, I think the answer is yes. And, and one of the things that I found most difficult to get my head around is some of the perverse effects of controls on migration. So ask yourself whether Bangalore would exist if uh, the US had accepted all the high-tech um, Indian engineers that wanted to go to the US, uh, and what the impact on Bangalore would be uh, if the US didn't have such strong H-1B uh, visa controls. And it, I think part of the answer would be that uh, Bangalore would have started much later. Uh, but it would still exist because people are, and this, this is true of many societies, people are developing technologies elsewhere uh, and then investing in their home country. If the conditions are right, what does that mean? They feel safe, they can attract skilled people, the, the investment regimes are positive, they can export from there, etc., etc. And that's what's been happening in many of these societies. So I think it is the case that people want to go home. I, I think it's generally the case. But the, there's a responsibility on the home country to create an environment which makes people feel welcome, safe, uh, and that they're part of their home country. The, the question of um, shopping around on asylum or, or other issues, this, this is um, clearly something that needs to 
in my view, be sorted at the coordination level. And one of the great problems is because there's no international migration organization, because there's um, so little coordination, is that you don't get appropriate uh, global policies. There is the UNHCR, which is a wonderful organization on refugees, but refugees define very narrowly. Uh, and it, it's, it's done a tremendous job on that. It doesn't deal with the overwhelming mi uh, majority of migrants. On asylum seeking, um, I believe that uh, there needs to be some sort of combination. In other words, it would be nice if asylum seekers could have some choice, but in the end it's about a distribution. And, and I think um, in the end that must dominate. You can't have all asylum seekers wanting to go to London. Uh, I just think that is not fair on London or the pressures on the London payers. Uh, but you can imagine, this, but I do believe we have a responsibility that all asylum seekers have a safe and comfortable place to go to uh, where they are secure, and that's a different sort of story. Uh, it depends on the numbers. You know, if you've got 10 asylum seekers, it's very different if you've got 100,000. Okay, we have time for two more, a couple of questions that we take up there. We can only take a couple, so I will have in the very last row, yes, the gentleman there, and then you. Um, hi, uh, I'm Dean Peters, I'm a PhD student here at the LSE. Um, so I'm just thinking about this, uh, the, the social dimension and the, this notion of integration. And it seems like that's going to depend a lot on the scale at which migration is occurring, right? So when there's very small numbers of migrants, they probably integrate quite quickly and simply because they have no choice. When you have kind of middle numbers of migrants, maybe like 10% of the population, right, then that's when things kind of get really tense, right, because you have the possibility that they form their own communities, they might be ghettoized if they have no choice about it, they might become politically influential if that's set up, and you know, they start to pose a threat to the native population. And then you kind of move through that point, to, I guess the Toronto case, where there are just so many migrants, you just essentially establish a new kind of, kind of average or intermediate culture between all the available groups available. So I guess the question is, uh, should we be trying to push through that intermediate zone as quickly as we can? Should we be trying to avoid keep in that zone but try to mitigate some of the problems that occur there? Or what should be our approach to dealing with these social tensions? Hello, I'm an IFP student from Queen Mary and I want to ask you to what extent we can implement the migration policies you suggested in Europe when clouds of xenophobia have already gathered in the sky, for example, the Norway attacks. Thank you very much. Yeah. Let's have uh, I'm, I'm, I'm relaxed. one last I'm an immigrant. Um, I'm an immigrant under Tier One, so I am concerned about. Uh, why do government provide um, tier one visa and uh, do they just want to get more money for the government and uh, or um, they want to stimulate the economy because the fact is that originally we just need to invest one million and uh, we can get our um, permanent uh, stay here uh, within five years, but now if we increase our investment for example five million um, pounds and we can get a visa within three years, so 
I think they just want you. Citizenship for sale. Right. Um, okay. Um, the the scale question. Uh, so the, I, those of you who didn't hear, the question is: Does the is it is it about the size of the of the migration population? I guess we're asking both um, in terms of flow and stock. Uh, the question. Uh, we need to remind ourselves that the, that the flows we have now, by historical standards, are low. Okay? Think about the age of mass migration, uh, both in terms of outflows of a third of the population, uh, as well as inflows in the U.S. in the uh, 19th century, 20%, 25% uh, of people were migrants. Uh, and there's a great variation across countries. The U.K. now is about 10%. Uh, the U.S. is about 10%, but there's quite a wide range between societies. And within the, within the societies, different places have very different numbers. Like I think London, if I'm not mistaken, is about 25% uh, migration, and there are parts of England which are almost really less than 1%. Um, so big ranges with, within societies. And, I, and, and this has been the, 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 the case uh, everywhere. I, I'm very nervous of some sort of arbitrary numbers plucked out of the sky which tell you what your thresholds are uh, because they don't bear any comparative scrutiny um, and they don't tell you about the migrants themselves. Uh, it, it's really an issue about how, what are these people going to contribute? You know, my view is if the UK can attract a million brilliant innovators uh, who will invent things and create new Silicon Valleys all over the UK, that's a wonderful thing over the next 10 years or something. It could transform the future of the UK. Um, but it, you know, we don't want a million unemployed people. Uh, so it's about what the people are doing. Uh, it's about how they're going to contribute to the society, what they're going to bring. And, um, and I think it is partly about integration. So are these people going to abide by your norms and standards? Uh, and I feel very sens uh, you know, uh, sensitive about the sorts of conversations about should we allow multiple marriages, that sort of thing. You know, I feel very comfortable with the idea that people need to abide by the laws of the country and the norms. So I don't think the UK should allow polygamy. Uh, and I don't think we should accept people uh, that are polygamous. That's their choice. Uh, other societies might embrace it. Uh, so I'm nervous about numbers. I'm, I think we shouldn't focus on numbers. I think we should focus on the migrants themselves, what they can offer, uh, who, and, and why they're coming. I think we should accept very large numbers of people uh, whose alternative might be uh, desperate because I think we have a, an ethical right. I think it makes us a better society. And we also know that these people, over time, will put back, uh, as, as has been the case uh, through the UK and other societies' history. Um, is, is Europe becoming more xenophobic? I think the most, one of the most remarkable things about that most awful tragedy uh, in Norway uh, was the response of the government and Prime Minister Stoltenberg, uh, which I just thought was inspiring. Because immediately after that tragedy happened, uh, he went into the media and said, uh, we will not close our borders. We will not become, allow this to make us into the society that that person, the murderer, wanted us to be. We will ensure that we become true to our principles, even truer in the future, and become more multicultural and more accepting of different people. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, that was embraced by the Norwegian population, that response. So I think it was 
uh, in Norway at least, uh, not the response that the murderer uh, wanted. But uh, what's the ripple around, and what do people think? I mean, you look at different societies. Yes, I think there is a growth uh, in xenophobia. I think there is a, whenever countries are going through economic crisis, when unemployment goes up, when people feel insecure, uh, they blame the other. Uh, they blame the bankers. <laughs> Some of that is justified. Uh, they blame people, foreigners. Uh, and that's what that book, Bloody Foreigners, that I refer to is about, uh, in part. Um, so I think there is the blaming of the other. Uh, and I think it, it's not helped when the leadership joins the chorus of the country. Leaders need to take leadership. And they need to be able to demonstrate that it's by being part of the world, it's by embracing uh, the flows that come, that the UK or any society has a way out of this morass that we're in. Uh, and that if we turn our back on it and allow ourselves to become more protectionist, more nationalist, uh, more xenophobic, actually our crisis is going to be prolonged. Now that's a difficult and complicated message to tell, particularly to unemployed people who feel very vulnerable. But I think it's the right message. And I really strongly believe in terms of the economic growth and potential of the UK, that we're doing serious damage to ourselves through the sorts of controls we're trying to put, particularly on skilled migrants uh, at this time. Now that goes to your question about the price of, of, of entry uh, and, uh, and tier, tier one. Yeah, I mean, my view is that you can see that that's a very simple way of doing it. Uh, in the end, to me, what's really important is the skills that people bring uh, and the ability to help transform this society. Uh, and it's not always immediately apparent in the short term. You know. So what's the benefit of having a jazz musician in your society or a, a, a particular type of physicist? It's that your society will develop a stock and an ability uh, of diversity and expression that will allow you to succeed in the future. One of the most remarkable things, and I'd like to end on this because I'm in a great university, is that we need to understand that the link between education and growth and migrants is extremely important. Now, what Australia does is it says to its top students, if you've done well, we want you to stay, and we'll give you a visa to stay. And if there's one thing that makes me optimistic about Australia's future, it's that, is that it's attracting and holding on some of its best graduates. What the UK is doing is making it more and more difficult for people to come and to people to go home quickly afterwards. This is not good for the future of innovation, postdoctoral studies, and growth in the UK. So the continuity from attracting people to be students, attracting them into the society, and getting them to stay, to contribute over time, I think is absolutely vital. And my great hope is that in this area uh, we can develop more sensible policies by understanding the forces behind them better. Thank you. So we're, we're coming uh, to the close of tonight's uh, event. It was, uh, uh, this is not cheap talk, Ian. I think it was a truly exceptional uh, lecture. Uh, uh, please remember 
uh, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, Ian will stay here uh, for some minutes. If you uh, want his, his book signed, you can buy the book outside. You could bring it, please, back in here, and he'll sign it for you. If you enjoyed uh, tonight's uh, lecture, there's many more public events coming up. Look, check out the uh, Department of Geography and Environment website, as well as the LSE's public events website. And finally, thank you very much again, Ian, and please join. Thanks,